0: Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Luke Hinton. Luke Hinton runs a company called Juicebox Live, which books bands eh, for various venues and does interviews and other stuff. Luke is also part of the Music Venue Trust, and eh, we spoke about that. We spoke about booking gigs. And also we spoke about his early life growing up and how he got into all this. How he got into music in general and also what Covid's effect has been on the music industry. And at the end of the show we spoke about his four heroes to come for dinner. Hope you all enjoy the podcast and I'll be back soon with another episode. Luke Canton, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Time for Heroes podcast. Um, Just If you start off, just be telling us where you grew up and what life is like uh, in your formative years and how that led you into the work that you're in now.
1: Yeah, no problem. I um, I grew up in a town called Hemel Hempstead, which is about 25 miles um, northwest of London, sort of between, uh, well, near Watford, well, between Watford and Luton. So there's a lot of... We end up in a lot of rivalry between t- between uh, Watford and Luton football fans. But it's a new town. Um, it's yeah, it, it's something that... It's a bit of a wasteland at times. It's one of those new towns where everything's purpose-built. Um, has its little pockets of history, but there's definitely a lot of things of lost identities. People being like my family were evacuated from East London in the war or North London. And there was kind of that element. And there's definitely that sort of feeling around the towns, like, like Hemel, Stevenage, Harlow, those sort of places where mm-hmm. it's kind of people still think that they're part of London, but you're that bit outside of it. So for me growing up, it was, it's, it's, look, there's nice areas. I'm, i uh, come from a working class background. It's something I went to, uh, Went to school, did A levels. Um, grew up in, well, in my my teenage years were sort of the Britpop years. So nice. there was a lot of sort of music about um, football, was the whole sort of real sort of birth of the Premier League. So there was suddenly that on TV all the time. And so the year I did my GCSEs was 1996. And we had Euro 96 happening sort of just down the road and going to games about that. And I'd say the whole, Grip hop thing was at its peak so music soundtracking all of that that so those formative years mm-hmm. and for me that year, I ended up at Nebworth as well so I was lucky enough to get tickets to go to, to Nebworth which is only about half an hour away from where I live so it was all of that happening <coughs> very fortunate that my dad and mum were both really heavily into their music um so I had their record collections to to listen to and it was definitely a thing of uh, listening to bands say like Oasis or, or Blur. You kind of then took the next steps of going, well, what were they influenced by? And obviously, Oasis, there was that very obvious Beatles influence, but then they were covering bands like Slade and um, and even Bowie and artists like that. And my mum and dad had that, so I'd sit there and listen to that. I then obviously after doing GCSEs did A levels, uh, which. I kind of did a lot of sport in it. It was one of those of playing. The the excuse was to continue playing football as much as I possibly could um, and then getting a job in a pub. And It was kind of that sort of thing of just a fun going out and out with my mates and going to gigs and, and, and things like that. Then I went to uni for a year. And around that sort of time, again, a lot of us kind of fell out of love with music in a weird way because we'd had those highs of the Britpop years the music was coming through with bands which are huge bands now mm-hmm. your Cold plays, Muse Stereophonics even to an extent was that end of Britpop thing and a lot of us there going it's just not the same and yeah, we all went I mean,
0: There wasn't the same energy not kind yeah. Of, yeah. I think it no, was I, wanted, I think it was, it was like acoustic bands
1: yeah it was it was the thing of and obviously there was I've seen like there was the live forever sort of documentary which kind of talked about it that that sort of mid-90s Britpop euphoria was very drug orientated in terms of things like cocaine
2: mm-hmm.
1: whereas that late 90s thing tended to be more sort of downers and sort of sort of heroin but then became more dancey elements of things came in which could completely create a different thing or started to have that undercurrent I think which is then sort of saw in the early part of the 2000s. And it was definitely a thing of when I was at uni that, yeah, we were going to clubs and doing all the student stuff, but it was a lot more focused on things like um, garage and two-step and, and and drum and bass. But that was, sort of, again, but I was going to him going, but this is crap as well. <laughs> and, and I just remember um, hearing the strokes and then it was like, Okay, I, I love music, again, and then Libertines, and then that whole movement.
0: Yeah,
1: and that that, time, this is the,
0: that's is like the nineteenth episode of the podcast, and um, pretty much every one they, they they reference back to the Strokes and the Libertines, changing it because it, it it was that monumental, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and 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 the thing is, obviously, my my promotion company is called Juicebox, which is after the the Strokes song. So it is kind of a thing of that that was it was a big thing. But again, in the elements of like the Britpop side of things was that they, it was fashion as well as the music. You could turn up at a, a club or you could walk down the street and you'd have your your trilby on or your or your converse or your skinny jeans or your leather jacket and or your, your, your tunic like your army sort of regalia. And you could tell what people listened to and you could tell you're all part of the same gang. And that to me was something as it kind of had that unity and that thing. It was like the whole indie look. And I think you've got the, what's it called? The sleaze indie sort of phase that's coming through for the, uh-huh. for the younger generation at the moment. And it's like sitting there going, actually, that was just what we wore. And that's what I still tend to wear a lot of the time. Probably less so of the skinny jeans, but um, but still definitely lots of polo shirts and uh, and Converse and and all of that. But it is something. Of, it was something that made me just go, yeah, that's what I love, and that's what it's about. And started going to more gigs than I'd ever been a- able to. Um, and it's yeah, it's kind of in the early two thousands obviously that happened. But around by the mid sort two of thousands, I was going out every single night to Camden. Right, um, and I was living in Watford at the time, and I was getting the train into to London. It was just because that's where everything was happening. And then in two thousand and seven, um, myself and a couple of friends, my friends had been doing a, a, an indie club night, right? And I was like, "Look, we need to get some live bands playing. We know loads of bands. We'll sort it out." And we kind of just decided to hire a hall, and and put these nights on um, and I was like yeah I know bands they'll play and it was but it was always let's get some local bands we know and let's find this band that we're going up to watch in London surely we've got these great spaces we can do it and I'll be honest we didn't know what we were doing we didn't have a clue Mm -hmm. but we it worked people came to them, and it was like and part of it was sitting there going we don't have to buy drinks at the bar either (laughs) yeah we, we, we could we can get a case of beer and stick it in the dressing room and help ourselves to it. It was kind of this thing of going all right loads of people are turning up we can play whatever music we want we can put on bands we want and it was kind of that's where it all sort of started. It was just kind of nothing was happening that we wanted in our local area so, so, so did it harm so we did it and that was kind of the that's how it started and it was there just to do that mm-hmm. as much. We felt as right. Well, I say we felt as much as right. The others kind of after about six months went, no, this is happening, we're doing too much, we've got proper jobs. Well, I was like, yeah, but it's fun, isn't it? And they're like, yeah, we can't be going out every night still and, and keeping our jobs. Mm. Um, and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we were, the two of us went, well, we're going to do more. And a couple of venues approached us and said, do you want to do some nights, like a monthly night at our venues? And it's kind of snowballed from there. And it was just the thing of, it's just we loved doing it. And it was going to watch live music and discovering great new bands and, and all of these things of. it's just been, oh, well, actually, it's just a bit of fun. It's what it's about. And there was never any intention of it becoming what it's become. Uh, it was it was something we never even thought that it probably lasts more than a couple of years of doing it. I say, this year will be 15 years since the first Juicebox gig. Right. And it is that thing that was like, well, yeah, no one told me I could make a living out of doing something that that I love. I always thought it'd be like, no, it's kind of all just done. It's like if we broke even on every show we'd done, it was like that was a win. But So
0: what what, what were you doing at university?
1: It was... I did um, sports studies with leisure management. Right. Um, again, I'd say one year, and then kind of went. This isn't for me
0: uh-huh. I,
1: I, because I, when I'd been doing my A levels and I was working in bars and things like that, I'd been earning money. And I went to university, and then suddenly that stopped, and I was kind of like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't even know where this degree's going. It was I'm doing it because it'll be pretty much an easy course for me to do. Mm-hmm. It'd be something, again, I enjoy just, again, a bit of sport and 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 a bit of music here and there. Because I was, I was, well, University in Walsall, University of Wolverhampton, uh, the Walsall campus, and I, uh, yes, yeah, obviously a few nights going to Birmingham, but it was the thing of, yeah, it was kind of, I, I did okay in my A-levels and things like that, so it was almost expected of me to then, continue the education side of things with when i um like with my parents and grandparents and uh, it was kind of a thing there's no direction of what i want to do yeah i end up coming back well after about a year end up working in a bank so it was kind of so that was things i was going to gigs every night whilst working in a bank but it it was kind of one of those is that there was no real direction of what i wanted to do um but it was one of those things of Music had always played a key part. And it was just something of when I was 18, 17, 18, 19, I thought I was going to be the next Liam Gallagher, like every 17, 18-year-old at that point did. Yeah. I I learned the chords to wonder I played played that here and there. Stood there with my hands behind my back trying to trying to be Liam. And it was cut but it was around that sort of point. By the time I'd come back from uni, it was like, well, I'm not going to be a front man and band I'm not even gonna be I'm not gonna be a lead guitarist I'm not gonna be in a band I haven't I'm not gonna be committed to to learning an instrument at this point because I want to be out I want to be going and watching it and enjoying it I guess that's where the promoter side of it came was that when I started doing that again I was sitting there going hang on how can I be involved in this and how can I, I I don't want to be a front man I don't want to be the thing that it's all about me Although mm-hmm. there's probably enough people who probably say that that's not the case. That sometimes I, <laughs> so my brother or something like that might say that's the case. But it's definitely an element of um, no. Actually, I'm. I feel as though I can still get involved and do something.
0: Yeah, um, well, I think this is why. That's why there's people like like me and like yourself and all these other people that look at just as much of a passion for the music, but yeah, we've maybe not get the time to put into learning an instrument, or you're just no good at that. but you still want to show your passion in another way, so yeah. podcasting, and promoting, and managing, or whatever, it's just another way um, sticking your love for the music in it.
1: Yeah, oh no, without doubt, and to me, it's the thing of, one of the, one of the prides of, from the very early days, is being able to, to put on, and book, and give bands opportunities to play. And those who are more talented than I, I ever was, uh, um, uh, and, and probably having more more guts than than I ever had to get up there and perform countless times on stage. And it is that, that thing of the, those next generation of artists. Again, mm-hmm. 15 years ago, I never thought that. Look, I'm in a position that I, I'm booking artists for showcase nights at the venues that we programme now who weren't born when the first juice box night happened? Right. So it, so it is the thing of, I would like to think at some point someone will say to me, we met at one of your nights and that your that kid that's playing. Yeah. Because we met at one of your nights basically. And it's like, that to me will be the next stage of things of people talking to me. We've had people get engaged on stage and we've had various things happen like that, but it is the thing of there, there was an element of, when I started well, I was booking let's say my peers, but even those who were slightly younger were only five, six years younger than me, whereas now there is definitely an element of, yeah, I am definitely old enough to be your parent, I am definitely old enough to be a teacher or something. so the way that I feel as though you looked at has changed over the years, and it's something that we've in the in the last four years, five years have had a focus on developing new people in the industry as well. Right. So, um, so going back
0: then to kind of the start of Just Books,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what was your role then, obviously, just kind of promoting? Band Booker.
1: I was probably, yeah, Band Booker. As, like, as a as a team, we all promoted and did what we could and all stood on street corners, handing out flyers and, and all of that side of things. And, it was still the MySpace days. So there was all that. And then it was kind of but yeah, I was one who went, I'll book the bands. I guess I was one who went and spoke to the venues. I kind of got it kind of ball rolling. Whereas the other the others were like, well, we've got our local pub or, or bar that we can do our indie night. And we've got a little sort of crowd of 20, 30 people who come to it every week. Um, but yeah, I was kind of the the lead booker. Yeah. And
0: and, uh, I mean, it isn't it hasn't an easy job. I've, I've maybe organised, in my, in my life, I've organised, like, three gigs, like, the same sort of thing, maybe, like, three or four bands on a night. But okay. it's it's so hard to... You're not dealing with just four bands, you're dealing with four different people in one band and five people for this band, and the minute one person pulls it, it can all fall apart. It's, it's yeah. I was really hectic, and... It's
1: At the beginning, a lot of trial and error. It it was something that, in, in a way, it was kind of like we booked, say, a lot of the early shows. It was bands and that we knew personally. So it would be something that bands we'd gone out and supported as fans of them, who or were mates, really. And then bringing in a band from further afield. And it was kind of something of doing that to to, let's say, I think because there was a trust from us to them um is that they knew what they were doing but we were trying to give that thing yeah we we do know what we're doing we've got a venue and there's a pa and i think i remember the first thing some of the terminology people using going up even things like advancing it was like yeah, yeah what's that yeah. and it was <clears throat> it was kind of a thing of like working it all out and it was kind of yeah it we can't just learn as we went and um, uh, it, but it, it, was, it was fun, I think yeah. I was drunk most of the time as well, so I couldn't...
0: Yeah, well, that's it was... it. the first one that I did, uh, I, think I, I think I ended up get that drunk, I had to get carried home, because I, I, <laughs> I was that nervous, that I just I drank so much, but one of the problems that I encountered as well, obviously the, the headline band, the headline mm-hmm. band brought the drum kit that everybody else used, which yeah. I thought that's fine, i have worked that out. But the the second band that we're on, the drummer said, I can't use this drum kit because it's a four-piece drum kit and I I play drums in a five-piece. So it's yeah. like things like that, that you you don't realise it's going to be an issue until
1: it becomes yeah. an issue. Oh, and it'd be the thing of you sitting there going, okay, you've got everyone's agreed to share a kit, and suddenly one of them goes, Well, our drum is left-handed, and you've given us a 15-minute changeover and you've got to do this. Yeah. But there has been a thing of learning and going, well, actually, well, some of that communication needs to be done between the bands early rather than actually, as the promoter, I'm like, well, actually, to, I've got a technical team now who get involved in that. But it is the thing of going, what I've learned over the years is going, actually, how do you preempt some of these answers? Be, or what's going to happen? Because at the end of the day, it is, it is the thing of, mm-hmm. you provide much, as much information up front And literally goes, there you are, there's everything you need. So before you ask me the question, where can you park? It's already in the pack you've been sent about the venue. If you ask me XYZ, it's like you've already been sent it. It's like, and it'll be one of those saying, is there a drum kit at the venue? No. Okay. This is the artist's responsibility to do it. If you want us to sort it, we will ask you to make sure you are dealing with all of the promotion of the event. No. And it is kind of thing we will work together, but, and I've had, we've had a show where, look, ultimately we will help find everything. We will be able to contact it. But if you'll sit there and say, look, we've advanced the show five weeks, six weeks before a gig mm-hmm. and the bands and the bands have been booked well before that as well. And at the point of booking or the point of advancing nights are told there isn't any backline or something like that. And this is a local level sort of show. I would say that between three or four local bands, if they are unable to source a drum kit between them with that much notice, I am more than happy for them to stand there on the night and tell their fans who have turned up that they've not been able to bring instruments to a local performance. Because I would also question if a band is ready to perform, they should have access to everything they need to be able to perform. Yeah. It doesn't matter about how every other band is going to get on because it's down to them to ensure that they are ready to do their gig because that's what they're there to do. We'll make sure that everything else is set up, but if it was something of they're sitting there going, look, we've got a legitimate reason we can't do something, we don't own a kit, or they've been added to a show late notice, or it's not been advanced in time, then I'll jump in and get hold of a kit and sit there. But I'll sit there and say, look, if it's six, week, six weeks before and they're saying, oh, we don't have a kit. Yeah,
3: if it's six
1: weeks here, Here's a hire company. <laughs> it's like, in the day, you, how, how do you rehearse? Oh, there's a kit at the studio. Speak to your studio see if they'll let you borrow it. And it, it, it's things like that that you kind of, you learn as you do it. And um, 99 times out of 100, there isn't a problem. Right. Only so, so often there, there is, but it's kind of, I would rather us be focusing on making sure that everything's right for the show and all aspects of it. Um, but as long as the information has been given, if you don't give the information, then it's, you're as at fault as they are. Mm-hmm. So obviously at the start,
0: you were putting, promoting. What? How's your role evolved? Or is it still the same, but just in a bigger scale?
1: Um, elements of it are the same. Um, in terms of I am still booking, I am still promoting events, but uh, for probably I say eight, nine years, I've held the Diary at the Horn in St Albans. So um, I've been booking that venue for that period of time. Um, I now have two other venues that I book or uh-huh. we book uh, the Diary for. So one 100 capacity venue, which is the Half Moon in Bishop Stortford, uh, the Horn, which is a 200-capacity venue in St Albans. And um, as of last week, the, we reopened a venue called Hartford Corn Exchange, which is um a 250-cap 250, 250 venue, but with the view that hopefully we'll get out to 350, 400-capacity soon once we can right. get permission for another fire escape. <coughs> um, in that time, I've I've been the head book of a small festival, um but I've also, actually, in the last sort of eighteen months, two years, I restructured the way it was all all done uh, and all set up. Is that I had previously been running it as a sole trader because uh, it was there was no need for it. It felt no need to do it any differently. Mm-hmm. But with with COVID, there was an element of I've got shows where there's large guarantees attached to them. And the uncertainty of coming out of COVID eighteen months ago, there was like, well, actually, these shows are still contracted. I don't know where ticket sales are going to go. I don't know how it's all going to go. And there was definitely an element of, I how do I protect that? And it was something, and we restructured uh, Juicebox Live as Juicebox Live Promotions Limited. Mm. So I created it as a limited company, um, as much for the protection of of what we do. But at the same time i then set up a, a community interest company which was aimed at development and training right and as a not-for-profit organization um so it became a, a, something of going actually we can do those two separate things but they're almost under the same umbrella yeah i, I had deep. a look
0: at the website um just before i came on and the website's cartoon there's Tons of stuff on it, obviously, like the Just Box TV stuff as well. Um, that was another
1: Covid thing, and it was something of uh Mika, who, who was the host of it. Uh-huh. He um, he's in, a, well, he's in a couple of local bands, he's in one now called uh Count Paris. Uh, who and he was there, and he got in, and he said, Look, I'm kind of at a loose end. Have you got any work going? went, no, because I've got no gigs happening. Everything's shut down. So we just got and got chatting and he said to me, It's like, well, I'm doing a, a media course at college. I was like, well, do you fancy doing a YouTube channel or something? I said, it's completely your thing. You run with it. What I'll do is I'll just contact people I know who work in the industry and say, well, do they, do they want to do an interview? Do they, if it's that artist we've got coming up or it's people I mm-hmm. work with or know but also local artists or sort of better known names. It's kind of a thing of, it was like, it's just something to do. It's something to put out there, have some content. Let's do things that promote what's happening because we don't know how long this can go on. And then he's kind of managed to find work, but it was something he straight away was like, I've got something to put on my CV now. All the stuff I did at college is great, but there's 20 of us doing the course. Whereas was actually having this thing and having this evidence that I've done this. And it was like, well, if you want to go into it, you've got that as a, a show reel almost. Yeah. Um, and it was something just saying, doing that. And it, the development and training thing is something I guess we were doing um, unintentionally. It was yeah. There was definitely elements of when you program working venues that we had uh, people come through who, who'd work in box office or or be part of the bar team. And they'd be like, oh, do you mind if I do a bit of show repping or or whatever it may be? And you're kind of doing the training just because you have your team of people there. And about five years ago, I think, probably maybe not quite as long as as that, but we had a a team that kind of none of them are part of what we do now. But four of them have got full-time jobs in the music industry. Right. All of them started box office all around about the same time. One of them's a tour manager, uh, one's the uh, head of AR for a, an independent label that's got offices in London and Austin. Uh, one of the team uh, is working for uh, Universal as a plugger. And um, yeah, so I said tour manager. And, yes. and, and 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 oh, sorry. One the other guy's also working as a tour manager. So yeah, the two of them. I mean, that's the amazing.
0: There for people yeah. who come in, cause, then they can see that there's a, a career path, and you're not just going to be stuck abuse after looking for tickets.
1: Yeah, and that to me was the thing of like, well, actually, none of them came in wanting to do the role they they end up they're now doing mm. because none of them I felt actually probably knew it that they existed. Yeah. And it, it was kind of, or, or it was something that they, there was an opportunity for them to do it. And, but I know a couple of the guys who are tour managing, they kind of got into it because they were meeting touring bands and having these conversations. And there was definitely an element of, in a couple of them turning around and saying, I could do that. Literally, I'm, I'd be better at that job than they are. Because yeah. I rep shows every single night. So I know what to expect. A couple of them, they're in bands and but we're we're all still really close and we meet up a couple of times a year and, and we've got WhatsApp groups where we still talk about, we're talking about music constantly. And, and it is that thing of, to me, I'm like, well, that isn't something 15 years ago, I ever thought would be an opportunity to give someone the opportunity to have those first footsteps in a, in a music industry, because everything that I had to do, we had to do it ourselves. Yeah. And, and but then that's
0: the thing. At that time, there wasn't the same. There wasn't the same opportunities you had to make them. So,
1: you you know how grateful you would have been for that. Yeah, and then um and then during during COVID we got support from the arts council. Um, so we, we did that. I did an application through the CIC to do a new promoter development course. Mm-hmm. Um, to offer a uh, well, it was four opportunities in in different districts not far so like Bedford St Albans Hemel Hempstead and um and Bishop Stortford East Hertfordshire uh-huh. regions for for people under the age of 25 who hadn't been through the higher education system to train up um to be a promoter It was, well, it was originally meant to be a four-month course but it took a year because we couldn't actually give them, they couldn't actually put on their shows um, so they would end up having 12 months worth of training before they could do their the shows. Um, and it was kind of a thing of going, well, actually I didn't, when I went to university, I didn't study event management. I didn't do. So I, my view is that almost that if you're going through that path in higher education, well, actually at the end of it, you should be ready to be getting a job in that, whether you choose to do it yourself or whether you go and work for, for a, um, a large sort of, uh, company, or whoever it may be, you've had that support, and so you should be there ready to do it. Someone who left school at 16, or whatever it may be, but is passionate about live music, well, that's probably the qualification they need, is that they're going to be passionate about it. The only thing they didn't have, or don't have, is the financial support to, to put on the show. Because I was lucky that I was working in a reasonably paid, paid job, I, it was also in an era, era before the credit crunch
3: mm-hmm.
1: where suddenly the whole crash had happened. It was a couple of years before that. So actually it was like, well, if it doesn't work, I'll stick it on a credit card. Whereas there was definitely something I've noticed with the generation of people who got in touch about hiring the venues, except we don't want to lose money. We can't afford to lose any money. I was like I think it's 200 quid oh, you'll, you'll make that in the next show it'll be fine is that if you're passionate people will turn up there's definitely a lot more awareness and it's so to me I was like well I'm the other side of 40 yeah. so where's the next generation of promoters so to me there was an element of going I want to try and provide people that opportunity to come through and work with us and and grow and say out of the four we've still got three as part of the team and they're all working as promoters in in the team sort of part time but they're all working in doing wrapping of shows and box office and doing bar work at the venues and and all of that and it is the thing of going well if that to me gives those people that opportunity to put on their own gigs and they're all under 25 and it's the thing of sitting there going actually they love what they're doing and that's you passing passing
0: down the bar and that I think it's something you
1: should be proud of. That's that's a really good thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a bit. Well, it's also part of it to try and make my life a little bit easier yeah. because it means that as we're taking on extra venues, that actually the workload can be spread around. And I think, um, like I was saying before, as you sit there and go, well, the kids who are coming through are looking at me perhaps as a as a parental or teacher figure, a person of authority just because of the natural thing of an age difference. Whereas if you've got someone who's their peer, those conversations will be a lot different to to, to what I would have with them. Um, And and I I think that's key. And I think those relationships are are as important because I think the next generation of, of artists should be dealing with people who they relate to. You also, as much as I'd love it if they were all into the same music as me, everyone coming through is listening to, to great new music and,
3: mm-hmm. and it
1: was all very indie influenced or Britpop pop influenced. It'd be, it'd be quite a boring music scene. And yeah. I think it should be something that what the, the music that's coming out and the new bands coming through should be talking to, to that generation. And I, as much as I like to think I've got a good ear for music, I also know that I'm not necessarily the target audience for, for what, the bands are trying to do so as much as I can offer advice it's actually getting people who really get it but also they don't have to be putting on just indie music or or rock music it is something of the whole thing that the new promoters were told is they are your nights Mm -hmm. it's
0: it's not as much like I think the, the younger ones nowadays the younger music fan. They seem to have a broader spectrum of different artists that they like, whereas pretty much me, I was kind of the the Libertines and all those guitar based bands. It was all that, and before that it was Britpop, whereas now people can like the bands and they can like grime and they can like R&B and whatever.
1: I, I think I, I totally agree. And I, it is something that, and I and I was very similar to you. When I first started, it was very much, we were Juicebox Indie when we started. It was like we were an indie night and that was it. And obviously when I started booking a venue, it became a thing of, well, actually, I can't just book indie bands. It has to be a bit more wider the spectrum. Um, but it then became a thing of getting to know different bands. And and in St. Albans, one, one of the biggest success stories of artists is Zentershikari. Mm-hmm. And all the members of the bands have very varying tastes of music, and the thing is, is that there will be things that they were fans of Oasis, but there's also they're fans of drum and bass. And but you listen to their music and you go, actually, I can hear the different influences. And they were there at hardcore punk gigs in the town. They were part of that scene coming through, and to me, it's the thing of. It's something when I've offered or done artist development sessions at the venue and done these free entry events and saying to bands, "Come along, and watch any event. Literally, if you want to come along and it's a showcase thing or wherever it may be, if you want to drop me a message and get in for free, then I'll sort it out because I want to see you here. Because when you, the, I can categorically say that every band that's playing in their first band that will not be the band that makes it."
3: Mm-hmm.
1: because you will be you'll be playing covers you'll be doing all of the bits because that's you getting out there for the first time but also one of the band will go to university and then never move back home or one of them will, or, will get a partner and and basically choose not actually yeah. it's not for the them and it, end. It, that's just the nature of what things are and it's not to say that the band was, wasn't good invariably they probably weren't that great but You're going to learn and you're going to find things. But also, how do you find that new bass player? Well, actually, by getting to know other bands and finding people who actually work on the same wavelength as you. But also, how do you develop your own sound? Well, actually going and listening to different things um, and watching what other bands are doing, because you can definitely learn from from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the most iconic front people in the world have undoubtedly stolen the way they perform off others.
2: Yeah.
1: But but to me it is well, I say stolen. They've used parts of it to their own to their own merit. And and, yeah. and I, I think that's I think that's something that it's going out there and being but you're being supportive of your your local scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean uh... Like see like festivals, a kind of a lot of festivals are like that as well. Like I'm looking back, uh, to t- I went to T in the Park one year. It was like, I went to see Libertines and <laughs> Wu Tang Clan were on, and then it was Placebo, and then it was Libertines. Like all one yeah. after each other, so there was a crowd of Libertines fans. We we went there down the front. We went it there early, so we were there for yeah. Wu Tang Clan. So you've got all these different elements. You had, like, people there to see Wu-Tang Clan, people there to see Placebo, and you had people there to see libertines, and it's all different mixture of different fans. And everything went well. There wasn't any bother. Like, there wasn't any trouble or anything like that. But that, I think that was back then when I started learning to kind of, that you do need to listen to other stuff that might be yeah. out in your comfort zone. Because how else do you... You can't just have
1: a closed deal in music. You need to... Um, no, 100%. It's got to be something. and I've, by being a, a venue booker and having to listen to different things, because you, I, I couldn't avoid doing that, I've discovered some incredible things. And it was things that I would 15 years ago, I probably wouldn't have even given the time of day. And I've gone to festivals to watch bands and that Yeah, fifteen years ago, that band was playing, and I would avoid it because I've been like, "No, I'm not going to like that." Now I've gone to see those artists and gone; they're incredible. Mm -hmm. Some, some I'll go. I still don't get it. I still, it's still not for me. But that's the beauty of music. Yeah, is that not everyone? Not everyone's going to like exactly the same things, but everyone will have some form of music that moves them. So
0: what's What's the plan going forward then? Obviously, as you mentioned, you've took on this new place of corn exchange mm. um, and you're going to try and up the capacity. But what's what's the plan after that? Are you are you looking at something bigger again?
1: Um, I think with that, it's kind of establishing that as the venue which we know it can be. That's such a big thing for the next, probably, I'd say it's probably going to take two to three years to really establish it um i think we'll get oh, we've got some great things lined up and we've got great things that we're working on but i think for it there to be in that that regular cycle of venues like you're gonna see the name on tour posters all like all the time uh-huh. will take a few years so there's gonna be a lot of focus on that um there's always little things bubbling away that we're looking at i don't i'd like love to take on more venues and have more people working the in team and take on more promoters so that we're able to really focus on that grassroots sort of future of music in, in, in my region, but ultimately the UK, but there's things of I, I'm still looking at potential festivals that we can do. So I've been involved in booking festivals as I said, but there's a couple of things of looking at what we can do with that. There's uh, local authorities have been approaching me about things for this summer with the, with the Jubilee so there's, there's things of what we can do with that. And a, a dream of mine would actually to be to get a venue opened in my hometown, being it's the largest town in the county, yet it doesn't have an entertainment facility. It, I, I think somewhat criminal, but as I mentioned at the very start, it's a new town where things purpose-built. Yeah, so therefore yeah. your your back room of a pub, Type venue which has been there for 150 years and it's kind of just as it, it wasn't built for that these places were built just to be square boxes basically and it's kind of it becomes very tough to to do things because they're also in, normally in the heart of a residential area mm-hmm. so it to me there's something of looking at if there's things that can be done on that but it's just constantly being busy I think it's something that I've um, had various people I know say to me they don't know how to find the time to do certain things, but I've got a very understanding wife who who kind of but is also passionate about, about music and set up juice box with me, so she knows she understands why she so which
0: have
1: her role in the, the company. Um, she doesn't have any, well, say in the I'm trying to think what in the promotion company she doesn't have any role now um but she was kind of a, a partner in it but since we've had kids she's taken more of a backseat role in, in that side of it but in she is a uh, the secretary of the CIC mm-hmm. and sort of a co-director within that and she's the director of a bar company that we we operate as well um so it's something so she's still got a few things going there but she is also a full-time mum, yes. which does enable me to kind of be out a lot more than, than than I guess most parents tend to be. But then that is the nature of my work. So, um, it, yeah, she's very understanding that when I need to be out till two in the morning, I will be driving home at two in the morning. Having and it's not like it was fifteen years ago where. Yeah. It would be it then be nine o'clock the next day that I'd be rolling in. Um <laughs> or, uh, and, and also going to things like Glastonbury or South by Southwest Festival or The Great Escape or Liverpool Sound City, whatever it may be, where I'm going to check out new new artists. Ten years ago it would have been the two of us together doing it. And now it'll be less so. And some of these events you'll still come to with the kids, but she won't be running around trying to catch thirty bands in a day. So it, it is, there's definitely a lot more of, um, but that's where we brought in the new people and the team that we brought in was because Rachel was having to take less of a um, yeah. less of an active role. But uh, is obviously just there, still as supportive of it as ever, and yeah, still pretty much the one of the or brainchilds of the whole whole thing. That
0: all sounds brilliant. Um, I've just towards the end. Um, it I'd, I'd like to ask you about this uh, revive, revive live tour Were you involved in that?
1: I, yeah, I was over. Well, throughout COVID, I worked for Music Venue Trust um, from April 2020 to October 2021, um, which was in, initially meant to be a three-month role. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, no one knew. how long everything was going to go on for and that was to to support venues um and i was the east england uh coordinator for music venue trust and uh i'd roughly about 90 venues that i was in contact with with the sole aim of keeping them open um and that they would survive to to the point of uh being able to reopen and thankfully all of those which fell into my region have got to that point so uh but as i said the role then, then then finished in october but round about that time there was um uh a deal struck with, between music venue trust and the national lottery mm-hmm. and which was uh titled revive live and it was the revive live tours and that with the help of lottery funding it helped to get artists back on uh, back into venues, crew working and all basically subsidized um and and the basis being that tickets were two for one for lottery players to attend basically to bring a plus one to get people back into venues mm-hmm. but let's say getting artists playing and I say it was it meant that there was no risk financially to to anyone and uh it, there was a lot of speaking to agents about getting bands out to play. And the first round I was involved with uh, in, in terms of helping to coordinate and and as a promoter, it's kind of what I did anyway, uh, with a, a brilliant team like, um, headed, headed up by Rebecca, who had previously worked at Lead Mill, uh, and, and Danny from the Sugar Mill in, in Stoke and, um, and and various others who work in the industry uh and it was kind of a thing of we got offered some some great shows and artists like uh Fontaines DC played uh, uh the Road Mender in Northampton yeah. um and uh Tom Jones played Cambridge Junction and, and 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 so that that all was obviously the first lot and it it really did help get basically people back and doing what they love and it kind of kick-started that a bit. And then there was another round in January, which I wasn't involved in the coordinating of it, but I had some shows as part of it. And we, we had Carl um, Barrett from the Libertines play at the Horn,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which is a show which from day one, I've always wanted to be able to get get him in to come and perform at the Horn. But yeah. just the nature of the, the venue capacity has meant that financially it hadn't been viable. But because of this deal is that the lottery were able to subsidise artists going into small venues. Mm-hmm. And, and it is something that suddenly you had, uh, I think, it was, you had some huge artists, and I've forgotten some of the ones on this latest run of, well, run I've, of I've seen
0: the, the Snuts run on it. The Snuts are playing the end of the day, not they? Aren't they? Um, that's the only thing I noticed, because I, I would have went to see Carol Barat and the Snuts, but... Yeah. Yeah, Carol Barat's tour, there was no Scottish dates. Um, uh, I know that the team had. Scottish Scottish
1: dates dates the I um, say I know that they obviously, because of the, the way the restrictions worked in the different nations, uh-huh. is that suddenly it made it quite difficult because there was a deadline for things to happen, right? But the restrictions hadn't been lifted, so it's kind of so there was. I know that the, the Scottish dates, I think a few have been moved for artists, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but yeah, there was there was definitely that when everything was being put together, it was like okay, well, this is our time period; we can do it. And it's like well, we don't know whether we uh, can do anything in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland.
0: Uh
1: huh. So, so there was definitely will be a lot a thing of...
0: that thing that the Will that's continue and revive live with the lottery funding. Do you think?
1: I don't know. Uh, I know that generally the feedback or the response from the lottery, especially the first round, was really good. Um and I, and I, I think it's something that the intention is kind of that the lottery wants to do more for grassroots music like they have done for sport over the years mm-hmm. like you, every local sports club seems to have had some sort of funding from the lottery which has helped get facilities up and help increase the standards within within sport but I think it's been perhaps noted that the grassroots music scene has been has been neglected a bit. And the, most venues pre-COVID you walked into and the PA or something had been, there's, there's gaffer tape holding things together and, and yeah. all of that. And it's kind of, it's like, well, what have we been able to buy here and there for it all to kind of work? And it's there's a lot of love and that's, that's held the industry together for many years. But it is something going actually, a bit of investment into it could help bring these things up a bit. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that everything's identical, and you don't walk in, it's just a box of everything being the same wherever you go, and because that isn't what grassroots venues are about, they're about the, the thing. But you need to have something of you need to know that you're going to have a good sound mm-hmm. when you're going into a venue, and so these sort of things of helping do that and getting people going into three venues is going to just help generate that. But it's that recognition, so. I think I'd like to think there'll be more, but I'm not obviously party to those conversations. And mm-hmm. if it does, I think it'll be something that could be could be could be a really beneficial thing for, for grassroots music across the, the country and yeah. it, it could be something that kick starts certain things um for for generations to come. Yeah. I, I mean I,
0: I think it's a great idea, like the two for one. Um just been able to like, I I go to a lot of gigs myself, just because I, I I'm not really interested in taking Sunday and worrying whether they whether they're enjoying it to the same yeah. level as myself, but I've been more inclined to take Sunday if it was something like that. I, I've been to gigs. I went to see Jerry Sandman and my pal, and he took a panic attack um, ten minutes before Jerry Sandman came on, and we. We managed to stay for his first two songs and he's like, No, I've had enough I need to go. So yeah. I think that was the last time. And I thought, no, I'll just start going against myself because I'm not
1: putting yeah, up. No it, it is something of uh, that. uh, that was one of the first things of round one. There was not, not say it's criticism, but there was definitely an element of um some people saying, Well, I don't want to go with someone, I like going on my own. And it is the thing of, I, I then don't want to feel the pressure of having to find someone to go because then I feel as though the venue's not going to be what it could be. So we actually, the second round, they added you had to have like different levels of tickets that could be bought so people could opt out of taking their plus one. Because that was one of the things we found in the first round in some of the smaller venues that we put Bob Villan on at the horn and it we sold our 100 tickets. And, then with the plus ones at 200. But it was probably about 140, 150 people in the venue because a lot of people didn't bring plus ones or they booked as groups of three. Uh, kind of that thing of suddenly was there going, well, actually the show's sold out, but how do you then, because as soon as it sold out, not many people then try and get in on the night, on, on the off chance. So it was one of those going, that's how you try and counteract it. And that's been something that we've had to deal with a lot since coming back after COVID without, I said, without restrictions fully,
3: mm-hmm.
1: has been shows that have sold tickets is that actually numbered no-shows has been a real big thing for for venues. Not so much for, for for promoters and artists because the tickets are sold. So in terms of the financial aspect, that is kind of going like, well, actually, the tickets have been sold.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: therefore, it's like everyone's getting paid based on that. But it's actually the venues have been the things which have then been impacted because, let's say, for argument's sake, you've got a venue that's 200 capacity but only 120 people turn up. Well, they've probably staffed that venue for 200 people coming. Yeah. And they and they may have bought stock for, for that sort of level of night. Um And it becomes a thing of going, well, actually, those people not coming and they're not spending the money over the bar, which pays for all of that, Could actually have an impact financially on it, right? And if they could, but I've spoken to people who've gone Well, the reason I didn't come is I didn't feel comfortable because of everything, but I didn't want to ask for money back because I know the industry's been hit. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, okay. And it's like it was only a tenner, it's only a fiver, so I didn't think of anything of it. So okay, well, what's actually quite key is probably you'd been better off either asking for the refund because of. Whatever, it, because it's been rearranged because the ticket probably would have been resold or yeah. using the ethical sort of ticket sites so things like uh, Tixle or Twickets where there's a cap on how much you can sell it for, you can sell it for face value basically mm-hmm. and it is that thing of going well, actually use those sort of things because the venues need people in them, the ticket yeah. sold is great but, but yeah. if the people aren't in there
0: Yeah that, that's really interesting because like your normal gig goer wouldn't think it like that. And I, I would have probably done the same thing, or oh, well, just no ask for my money back. But, but it's not until you you put it like that that's
1: because say for me, I'm a promoter, I've got a promotion company. But in terms of the operating of the paying the, the rates and the obviously the rent of the building and the the utilities and all of that, well that's done by the the venue. Yeah. And they make their money from the bars. So if they're not receiving that money, well, I sit there and go, oh, brilliant, I've got a sold-out show, but only 100 people turn up. Well, their bills don't suddenly drop for it. So I think it is something of, well, hopefully things kind of normalise a bit in the next month or two, and uh, and we're in a position that there'll be less – people feel less anxious about going to things. But that's not – I know that's not going to change for the next – year perhaps people there's going to be elements of people who aren't going to feel comfortable going and being in in crowded environments um straight away but i think it is something about just people being aware. i think most venues wouldn't have an issue of people asking to get a refund on tickets just don't wait for it until the very last minute don't ask for a refund two hours before doors because the venue's not gonna be able to resell it so if you're thinking i don't feel comfortable i don't want to go i can't make the new date because I booked it three years ago. Mm. You're actually better off getting that refund earlier and then giving the opportunity for people to to take the ticket and be there. And again, like I said, it doesn't impact the artists. Well, it does when they've sold out a show and then you look out and they only see 60% of the room. Mm.
0: The funny so, yeah. thing is, with it, obviously, like when, when restrictions kind of lifted like August, September here I've, I've been in my bed seven or eight gigs or something between August and Christmas because mm-hmm. we'd missed that many gigs that you want to go and see everything. But what mm-hmm. I noticed, I went to see Billy Bragg and I got the ticket three days before for and he was playing the barlands in Glasgow, which I've never known to be able to buy a a I bought the ticket off the Ticketmaster. And then yes. the same way the Libertines in November. I bought the ticket on the day of the gig, off the Ticketmaster, which again never heard it before. Like these things are always sold out. So
1: well, well, I think that's the thing is that I would say to, it's worth checking shows that you th- would be sold out or mm. potentially had been sold out because there are things popping up because people are going actually I can't make it and it's like that there'll be a football match on at the same time as a gig, or there'll be three gigs that you have booked all happen to be on the same night.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, Or or it happens to be on a date that you couldn't do, but you wouldn't have known you couldn't have done it when it was happened. And that to me is the things that these dates that have been rearranged. It is the thing of it. It's like some people will have forgotten about it. And I think there's an actual element to it. There were discussions going. Well, do we sell extra tickets for shows? And like, well, no, because if everyone turns up, then you can't get them all in the venues. Yeah. So therefore, you can't do that. So it is that there is that scenario, and it is something of look. Um, it's it's up to each individual, but I think it's something of that was definitely something that's been noticeable. I would say in perhaps the last month or so. Well, not perhaps not a month since. The kind of the, the measures were relaxed in England. I've started to notice that the no shows have started to, to drop. Um, but I do think we've got fewer shows that have been rearranged now as well. We've got a lot more new new dates opposed to shows that have been rearranged three or four times. We've got a handful left, but it is the thing of these dates are the original date now. So I think so I think you're gonna see if they less chance of a a, a no-show. On, on things like that. I think there's there's definitely been an element of bands suddenly not wanting to do shows as well.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of bands I've noticed like the Snuts were one that were um, quite cautious in playing because obviously there's, there's good reason behind
1: it. Obviously, if with tours, it is you something as, if you can do yeah. one of you test positive halfway through then that's the tour completely mm-hmm. scrapped and I totally get that side of it, and it is something of uh that. It's it is kind of the tours are planned. I i, look, I there may be a, a skeptic in me that sometimes I said some tours have been have been moved because ticket sales weren't perhaps where people wanted them to be. uh That may just be me reading into some things too much, but uh I think there may be a thing I oh, actually will wait a little bit longer to and sell a few more tickets. But mm-hmm. it's. Um, but you've you've got it's it's gonna take time. And I think in terms of the grassroots scale things, things are happening. Um the larger level, it's the nature of it is if you need 10,000 people, 5,000 people in a venue to make it work, well, you've got to be confident that's gonna happen. But say so these these little venues, yeah, well, they, they they operated with 20, 30 people on a Tuesday night before. So they're still gonna be able to do that. And they're still going to be able to do these things. And just because, yeah, someone's not playing at the Barrowlands or Brixton Academy till till April May, it's actually a perfect opportunity to get to grassroots venues and and just show that bit of support and paying four quid, five quid to get in and having a couple of drinks will actually probably help those venues survive. And that is the thing. It, without those venues, they've all got everyone's got through to this point. Mm-hmm. It's like don't let them any go now, and that to me is, would be such a key thing to put across to anyone. Is like literally help these venues get through this next sort of step, where it's the rebuilding and the revive live element of things, because it would be it'd be a travesty for a venue, or, like if any venue's been fighting for two years to survive, yeah, and then get yeah, to four, pretty four, much three. the end and then go, it yeah. would be. They've had all the financial support from governments and, and, and councils. And then to go at the final hurdle would be, or the next few months, and it's going to be that thing that there's going to be ups and downs, but it's like, go local. There's less risk of saying, going to things which are local than there would be traveling halfway across the, the country because you're kind of mingling in the same networks of people as well. So yeah. I think it is something of just, um, yeah, just, it's not over. I think this is kind of a key message.
0: Well, that's been brilliant. Look, you've been a brilliant guest, and it's been a really insightful conversation as well. Um, obviously, what we do towards the end of the podcast is I ask you for four heroes to come for dinner, and what you're going to cook them as well. Um, <laughs> so it's just fire away.
1: I'll say. You, you, I know you, you asked me this before, and i and and there's so many things I I go through in my head it's like who could it be what reason and it's going to be one of those that as you can probably tell I don't mind talking but if I'm having a a dinner party with four guests I'm probably going to invite people I want to listen to
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and learn from and get their insight on things and also may entertain me Um, and I'll say if there's if I'm going to stick to sort of a music sort of related dinner party, Mm -hmm. I would say, I'm going to go with Liam Gallagher as a young um, impressionable teenager Uh listening to to him at that time. I was tempted to say no at the same one, just to listen (laughs) to the tournament. But there there are recordings of that, that sibling uh, rivalry recording of, uh, of them obviously almost gives you that insight anyway but so i'll stick with liam yeah. um very
0: very rare no
1: for you
0: put the two of them together
1: i know mean. but they'll they make it a great pie you have not have to cook anything because it'll be um <laughs> it will be over before it died uh there could be a broken guitar or two but uh um i'm gonna one person i'm gonna add who people might know hopefully they do know is a guy called andy ross who is um who through my 15 years being involved in Juicebox has gone from someone I was introduced to as a band manager and uh, became quite a close friend and a real sort of mentor and I think an unintentional mentor. And I um, met him out in a pub in Camden that was managing a band called Bleach at the time. And me being a big Oasis fan at the time, didn't put two and two together. This guy, Andy Ross, who, uh, was working in the music industry based in Camden, uh, was the Andy Ross from food records. All right. um, Who had been the guy who discovered blur. Mm -hmm. It was actually my wife, Rachel was sitting there when he went in to get us a drink. When you do realize that's Andy Ross as in Andy Ross from blur. Mm -hmm. Um, sadly he, he passed away a couple of weeks ago and he's, I say one of those people was an incredible passion for music shared his knowledge with so many people so almost like on a sentimental thing for me but it would be a thing of being able to just listen and chat with him about music football all of those things and someone who's been there and done it and he was one of the reasons that that blur oasis battle happened and yeah uh, him, him well and sadly it didn't happen but him and alan mcgee were due to go out on tour at some point with their, both of their sides of the story and they became quite good well, friends. So Brilliant as well. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned about the, the videos, Mika did a brilliant one with Andy and I really recommend going back to it. He's got a great story about him and Guns to Roses. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll,
0: I'm going to put a link at the end as well. I'm going to put a link for you, for your website. Been-
3: so that'll
1: be brilliant. Thank you. Um Next one, John Lennon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Probably quite an obvious one, but he's one of those people who's, who at young age influenced my musical taste through my dad. It was something of he. my dad was a huge Beatles fan and Lennon was kind of one of those people that just was such an interesting character and it was something of the way his music spoke to me. It would just be something of having him sitting there. Well, I don't know whether with him and Liam in the same room, anyone else would be able to talk because Liam would be asking him so many questions about... Uh, so many things of how you can continue that legacy. Um but yeah for me just being there and again that's kind of the last one I'm gonna go with it's a few I, I'm gonna say Pete docty just for the Libertines thing. I've had I've had the pleasure of meeting Pete a few times. Um again just a, one of those a bit like Liam is one of those people that when they're in the room, they light it up, they're, they're full of charisma and they are what they are. Um, but always got something to say, always going to listen to what they, they've got to say. And have been there, done it and kind of, I think just their experiences of, of music is there. But again, there's, there's so many more I could have chosen. And one which was close to it again was Amy Winehouse and, uh, and some various others that there's a lot of uh, interesting things in terms of what would I cook them I don't know I'd just tell them i I'll give them a delivery order and just let them order it themselves and Uh, I'll sit I'll sit back and listen to the conversations and uh, and learn from some very inspirational uh, people
0: uh, they're brilliant Joyce again and uh, Pete Doherty for a podcast called Time for Heroes it's the first time any libertines ever been picked as a hero
1: I, I, I was gonna I was gonna I was considering saying Carl but obviously because I was I saw him recently when we put him on so uh I'm <laughs> I I'm not going to I'm not going to sort of throw too much into that because obviously I have had lots of dealings with him recently so
0: right, I was trying to get I, I had um Rob Allen on the podcast um a few episodes ago yeah and um at the time uh, recording they were um organizing James Allen's stature yeah uh, <laughs> and he was Alan McGee, Carol Barat, and Las Vegas all, all gone to Las Vegas, um, and I was I was like choking to get Carol on the podcast, and I was like, oh, <laughs> "If there any chance that you could just invite me to Stagdo, and then I can go to Stagdo, he's on, we can talk about okay. it." Yeah, so I was trying to trying to shoehorn my way into uh, Stagdo with Alan McGee, Carol Barat, and like Las Vegas, but I've not
1: had. Uh, I've not had to invite that, so I don't know, know what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. No, McGee was quite influential to us early on, actually. He mm-hmm. was someone, he was one of those that I well, used to attend, like the Queen is Dead night at um, the venue that's closed down the borderline. So we went there a few times and, and, um, yeah. It, and it was something of, I remember just, yeah, he was a big influence because the Oasis and Britpop thing, it was something always listening to the music that he brought out, so, or worked with. So there was a lot of that. So but yeah, there's so many people you could invite. And if you ask me again tomorrow, it'd be four completely different people. Yeah.
0: You do realize as well. I mean, I think you were worried about Liam and John
1: Lennon together.
0: But <laughs> um also get Liam and Pete together, which could get a bit tasty well. Oh
1: well, yeah, of course. I like, have completely <laughs> forgot with the with yeah. with the, the yeah, the, the past relationships.
0: Yeah, so I uh, so after you get space, I'll come to that as well because I think that'd be brilliant to be in the Good club. Morning, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's been brilliant. So just
1: before you go, we can what's your website that's juicebox? It's uh it's juiceboxindy dot com. So Aye. J-U-I-C-E-B-O-X-I-N-D-I-E dot uh-huh. com. So and then and, that, yeah, and then through there, find all the socials and, and various things and gig listings, history of what we've done, artists we've worked with, all of that. And, yeah, if anyone wants to speak to me more, then they can generally find me through through, through that one way or another. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, thank you for contacting me. And uh, I say, yeah, hopefully it's come across all right.
0: Yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P One, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly enjoy.